there's a good chance you've already heard of the iron stash. Randy Bryce is a union iron worker and a Democrat, and he's running to replace House Speaker Paul Ryan in Wisconsin's first congressional district. I'm Jesse Opoyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about the 2018 elections in Wisconsin. Stay tuned for my interview with Randy Bryce, where we talk about everything from his iconic mustache to his calls to abolish ICE. But first, let's check in on this week's news with Cap Times reporter Eric Lawrenson. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, how are you? I'm great, great. It's been a busy week. Yeah, pretty busy week in terms of state politics, too. Yes, last Friday, uh, we had our first gubernatorial primary debate for the Democratic field. The candidates debated each other in Milwaukee, and then on Monday, we got campaign finance fundraising reports. So we got our first really good look at who's got how much money in the bank, what they've been doing with that money. And uh, then on Wednesday, we found out the latest Marquette poll results. A lot to unpack here. Let's start with the, the Marquette numbers. So let's start with the Democratic field, shall we? Let's do it. Uh, turns out most voters in the field are still undecided. 34% of Democratic primary voters still don't have their minds made up yet. But Tony Evers is still holding on to his lead. He's actually gained some ground. He is has gone up to 31% in the primary field and no candidate behind him has topped 10%. Um, the next closest candidates are Kathleen Vinehout and Malin Mitchell, and they each have 6% among primary voters. Um, most of the differences for those uh, lower percentage candidates are well within the margin of error, so it's really hard to say how much the field's breaking apart beyond Tony Evers being ahead, still having the most name recognition. But still pretty low rate name recognition. I think it was still 60% of voters didn't know enough about him. So like, no one's paying attention is the takeaway here. Yeah. It, these results seem pretty similar to the last Marquette poll when it comes to the Democratic field. Only difference is now we're less than four weeks away from the actual primary yeah, election. Yeah, not a lot of change. And this was the last Marquette poll we'll get until after the primary. In terms of the Republican Senate primary, also about a third of the voters in the Republican primary are undecided, but that one's tightening up a lot more. We saw Kevin Nicholson a few months ago with a much larger lead over Leah Vukmir, and it's essentially tied at this point. She's two points ahead of him this week, um, still within the margin of error, but this is the first time that the poll has showed her leading him. Scott Walker's favorability is at 47%, um, 45% disapprove. The fun thing about polling on Scott Walker is there are not a lot of people without opinions on him. So you don't get a lot of undecideds. Okay, let's change tack here and talk about what we learned about campaign finance this week. We learned that Kelda Royce has the most money in the bank right now, a little over $600,000. We also learned that she loaned herself a lot of money, uh, $255,000. She's not the only candidate to loan herself money, though. Uh, most of the, I think the top five cash-on-hand campaign accounts loan themselves at least $100,000, with the exception of Malin Mitchell, who has the third most uh, cash on hand, and a significant amount of his funds came from union political action committees. The top fundraisers right now are Kelda Roy's, Matt Flynn, Malin Mitchell, and Tony Evers. And we've seen two of them now put that money to use by going up with TV ads on air. 
both uh, Matt Flynn and Calderoys will have ads airing throughout the state starting Friday. Uh, Matt Flynn's ad is talking about Foxconn. I'm the only military veteran and the only one taking a stand to stop the Foxconn deal. And Calderoys is talking about what she would do to protect access to abortion in Wisconsin. I tell my girls, we can't look backwards. We have to move forward. We have to build the future that we want. And, of course, Scott Walker, in terms of his fundraising, I mean, it's not even really comparable. (laughs) It's not. He's blowing uh, his opponents out of the water. He's got about $6 million on hand, and combined with his running mate, Rebecca Clayfish, he's got more than $8 million. They've been on the air, too. They've been running TV ads for months. I don't even I've lost track of what number we're on right now. Um, It's basically been a new ad every week, it seems like, for the last month or two. And I do just want to mention poor Josh paid 0% support in the Marquette poll. Also, he is in the red with his campaign finances right now. Josh Pate has less money in his campaign account than he has uh, support in the Marquette poll. Yeah, he's negative uh, 20-some thousand dollars. Although his campaign did say that some of that may be uh, a filing error, so he may have a little bit more money than that. But still, not in a great spot in either polling or fundraising. But he says he's staying in the race as are all of the other candidates, including Madison Mayor Paul Soglin, who is not staying in the race for mayor, but he will stay in the race for governor. He announced this week he will not be seeking re-election as Madison mayor, regardless of what happens yeah. in this race. It, uh, so this campaign of his for governor is something of a final electoral hurrah for Paul Soglin. Well, uh, let's get to the interview. Randy Bryce this Randy week. Randy Bryce, the yeah. Iron Stash. Iron Stash, yeah. Right now, I see that working people aren't represented in Congress the way that we should be, proportionately. Um, over half of Congress is made up of millionaires, and... Um, I I became very politically active after Act 10 and when Scott Walker was elected and um, from helping organize protests in opposition to Act 10 to taking off of work and going to testify for anti-worker legislation, um, I've seen that that isn't enough, that we actually need more of of ourselves to, more working people to actually be in a position to make these decisions and um, currently that's not happening so I took it upon myself to take the next step. You got in the race to take down Paul Ryan, and he's he's out, but it's still going to be a challenge. I'm sure it's right. it's a it's a Republican leading district. But how has the dynamic of the race changed since the Speaker of the House was no longer your opponent? Well, even though he's gone, he very clearly stated that he wants whoever comes after him to continue his policies, and that's why I think it's perfect. You know, he said he was going to stay out and not endorse anybody in the primary, and and he did. He backed his former staffer. And they've worked together in the past. He's very familiar. Helped write horrible budgets. So he's going to be, he's going to continue on where Paul Ryan left off. And and we saw within three days of him launching his campaign, he was able to bring in $250,000. And today, Donald Trump's coming to, to help him raise money. That I think that speaks that not only are they very concerned for the seat turning blue, and it, it is a seat that President Obama won, Senator Baldwin won, um, and it's only seen as a, a plus five R. So it's it's the most winnable congressional seat in Wisconsin. 
you've run for office a couple times before, and uh, not one yet, but you've been really involved in politics throughout this this entire time. But what did you take away and learn from your previous experiences running for office? How has that shaped the way you're approaching this campaign? Um, well, the other times when I was asked, like, the first time I, I ran for state assembly was um, right after Act 10, Peter Barca came up and he said, Randy, would you, we need more people like you to run. So without any hesitation, I I agreed to run for the assembly and um, without knowing anything of, of what involved. So that was uh, like diving in the deep end of the pool without knowing how to swim. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I managed to tread water. Um, and then next time around was for state senate. And Senator Wirch asked me to run for, for state senate. And I knew I had a little bit of of knowledge as to what it involved. So I was like, well, we need to talk about this before I say yes. And, and again, it was a very heavily gerrymandered district. And I talked with them and let them know where I was. And they thought that the John Doe case was going to blow up that summer. And he was like, we want to have a good candidate in place for when that does happen. It never did open up, but still I took it as an opportunity to to help the, the uh, gubernatorial candidate. And, I mean, those doors would not have been knocked if I didn't run. So I continued on and you know, wasn't very optimistic about our chances, and, and we ended up losing. Um, and all that was done while I was, you know, in my spare time after work as an iron worker. And so this time before I got into it, before I accepted the challenge to run, I was like, this is going to, this is a lot different. This is going after the Speaker of the House, third most powerful Republican in the country, and we need to do it right. So I learned that I was going to need professional staff around me, people that knew what was going on. So so that's what we were able to do. And um, I'd have to say that I, you know, things that weren't successful in the past have turned out to be pretty successful now. Most people would probably agree objectively you're the, the front runner in your primary, um, but you just still have to get past the primary race. You probably agree on a fair amount of policy issues being mm-hmm. Democrats running in this race, but what sets you apart? Are, are there policy things you disagree on? Is it more of a matter of style? How do you differentiate yourself in that particular race? Well, first of all, I give credit to anybody that's stepping up these days to run against the Republicans. These aren't your, you know, typical Republicans that we that we saw in office 20 years ago where it was it was nice. You could disagree and and leave with a smile on your face and say, "Well, we just we're not going to agree on that." This time it seems more of a in your face um type of a very adversarial kind of situation. So again, I give credit to anybody that wants to step out and run for office. But I would say our differences are the fact that I know what it's like to really have to struggle um, with being able to, you know, being a single dad and and making ends meet and not being out of work at times and, and explaining to my son when we go grocery shopping, you know, look for the certain color stickers, things are on sale that these are the things you know. It's going to be hard for a while until until Dad gets back to work, especially in the winter. In the winter time, I mean, um, being diagnosed with cancer, working full time, and not having any insurance that really opens your eyes to what kinds of things that people are struggling with. And I would further say that um, you know, in addition to being a lifelong resident of the area and, and knowing what it's like to have a friendly member of Congress in the area, like Les Aspen, when it, you felt really good about who was representing the area. Uh, just the fact that our campaign has been able to to build something. I like to say that we're in construction, not demolition. And being able to bring together a pretty much a unified Democratic Party. I mean, it's, you know, we say we don't have Bernie people, we don't have Hillary people, it's all Randy people. And then throw in labor, 
and you know it's it's great to have that kind of support that it's about building a movement and being able to have the resources not just to win this seat but to help other congressional candidates throughout the country and and we've been able to build up a really good list that we've been able to to help other candidates raise money off of it's about being able to build something and I, and I see that as definitely part of the reason why Paul Ryan, you know, he's never seen anything like this and, and definitely had something to do with him deciding not to run. You put that challenge to him in your campaign video that went far and wide. I'll go to Congress, you come home and work the iron. You don't fit the the mold for the traditional candidate, or at least, you know, you, you didn't when you entered the race. Can you tell me a little bit about how you found yourself going from iron worker to activist to candidate? Personally, I see it as, as kind of a natural progression. I mean, just my involvement in the union. It happened after a few years of, of being a union member. And, I mean, joining the union, that was my ticket to being part of the middle class. And after that, I wanted to give back. So that's why I ran for office as an, as an officer within our union and then stepped up from that to run for um, county labor groups uh, with the Milwaukee Area Labor Council, the Racine County Labor Council running for seats there as well um, in a leadership capacity. Um, but just seeing in, you know involvement and in, in learning how local politics helped our membership get jobs by going to the city council meetings for the rezoning, talking with people that wanted to to build businesses and, and being able to work with them and coming to agreements that if you use our Local workers will show up at these city meetings for you and, and speak on your behalf that you're going to be a great neighbor, you're going to help employ local people, and in addition, we'll, we'll spend our money that we make at your stores. Just seeing the kind of attacks that we've been under since Governor Walker took over in the state, um, how they carved up the state and you know drew it into gerrymandered districts, doing everything they can to continue with more voter suppression. Uh, we need to turn things in the exact opposite direction. A true democracy has more people voting um, so that you can actually get a gauge of the will of the majority. Um, so it's just, it's not something that was on my bucket list, that this is what I want to do, and I, you know, my life's going to be incomplete if I don't run for, for something like this. Um, but I really felt that at the time and place when when people and groups had asked me to run, I, you know, that there really wasn't an alternative. If if I was going to sit back, you know, when I when I become a grandparent and my grandkids ask me, what did you do back then when this was going on? I'm going to I'm going to have some positive things to say. I didn't just sit and watch this happen. Your family, both raising your son and, and your mom's healthcare story, too, and, and your own healthcare story seems to play a really integral role in, in your campaign and how you approach this, healthcare in particular being something that, that you've talked about. How does that inform what you would do in Congress and why this campaign is so meaningful to you? I mean, we look at Paul Ryan's health care plan, and this is one of the things that got me to really want to become more involved because we're on a job site and we're like, look at this guy, Paul Ryan, talking about repealing and replacing our health care. And it's like, why don't we repeal and replace him before he destroys our health care? And health care is such, a, such an important issue. It affects everybody. It's intergenerational. For myself, being a cancer survivor, it's huge. My mom has MS. My dad has Alzheimer's. He's in assisted living. And just knowing that even though I belong to a union, we're self-insured. But our method of insurance has to do with hiring an, an administrator to turn down our own members' claims. Um, and, and that's a crazy way of, of looking at how to provide for our membership. So um, things like that, things I'm running to, and I'm looking forward to enacting policies that will help working people um, make life easier for us. Because, you know, Paul Ryan's plan had 23 million people getting kicked off of health care. 
Um, and now with this latest tax scam, $1.5 trillion is given to the, the wealthiest people in the country. And now we're being told we can't afford things like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which is just outrageous if you ask me. We're, we're going in the wrong direction with the leadership that is currently in charge of the country. And I'm looking forward to doing something to, to take it back so that working people do have a, a shot at it. What are your other policy priorities should you be elected to Congress? What would you really like to come back and say, you know, I, I did this or at least I tried? Um, making it so that if you work 40 hours a week, you can you can pay your bills, which is $15 an hour is, is very important. When people have extra money in their pockets, they're going to buy things, and that's going to create a demand for, for more goods and services, and that's a cycle that, that's going to help get other people back to work. Uh, also in favor of making sure that we protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, because in the first district, so many people depend on that. Also, make sure that people have safe working conditions and that we don't have to work until we literally drop dead. And, and one of the ways that I know we can get great, great paying jobs into people's hands is uh, rebuilding our infrastructure, just driving here and all of the, the Scott holes on the, <laughs> on the road. Um, I mean, this is something I've done for the last 21 years is, is literally build this with my hands. And it's the time when the, these projects were built was about 50 to 75 years ago, and it helped get us out of the Depression the first time. And right now, there's, there's, if you're not going to college, one of the best things you can do is look into, into an apprenticeship. There's no tax money used. And when you're done, um, you graduate from the apprenticeship, it, it's a career. You can go anyplace in North America and work, and you don't have any college loan to pay back. Our country needs it, and, and people need work. So it's, it's a fantastic way to get people back to work. Is there anything when you look back on Paul Ryan's career that you think he has done well or that he has done to represent the district well? Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, he the thing is, is he was in for 20 years and he started off as a, you know, a likable guy um, who wanted to do things. He always promised to protect Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. And um, I think just this last time around, we saw that he, he hadn't been in the district for over two years having a public town hall event, that we started calling him out for that. I was stating you know, early on that it was 600 days since he had a public town hall that he needed to come back and, and be in touch with the district. You can't represent people that you don't want to see. And he was claiming, they called PolitiFact on me, and he was like, well, we have these telephone town hall conferences, or I'll go into a business and he'll talk to the employees there. Um, so I had to correct myself that it wasn't 600 days since he had a public town hall, but it was 650 days since he had a public town hall. But I think that just shows that, you know, towards the end when he was Speaker of the House, which is something that I think a place he wanted to be at in order to get his tax plans through, that he wasn't able to do it, that he wasn't capable. He didn't have the ability to to get the votes needed in order to, to, to do anything to help us. And that's why, like this last tax scam that benefited the, the wealthiest people, finally his bluff was called and we saw what he was about. And it, it was... Um, it wasn't about protecting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. It was about cutting into those programs so that he could um, provide his donors with more benefits. You know, personally, a, a likable guy, but his, the policies were just very horrible. An issue that's really been in the news lately, but that you were out front on really a couple months ago, is ICE and immigration. And you were 
to my knowledge, really one of the first prominent candidates to call for the agency to be abolished. And we're starting to see that gain a little bit more traction. Mark Pocans introduced le- legislation to do just that. How did you come to that point where you were ready to make that proclamation? And what would you hope to see happen in its place? Well, just talking um, with with the immigrants' rights community and, and listening to people's stories, having little children talk about how terrified they were of, of ICE. And, you know, when, when most people picture ICE, it's a militarized police force. At first, when, when we were talking about the idea, people were like, well, isn't that kind of a, a very radical idea? And, and I was like, well, think about it. They've only been around for 15 years, not that long. We were fine before they came into existence, and, and now we're seeing them totally abuse the power that was given to them. They're, I mean, more people are being detained than ever before. And we're talking about citizens that have documentation to be here that ICE has no no purpose or no reason whatsoever detaining and, and putting away. The government shouldn't be terrifying people. And, I mean, just listening to the stories, too, about a, one in particular, a high, a high school young woman who's talking about being in school. And, and after school, she doesn't know if she's going to go home and her dad's going to be there um, waiting for her um, because he didn't have documentation or for her to, to be able to even finish her day in school. So it's something that you know they've outlived their their purpose. They're they're doing more harm than good now. And um, ICE is not a government entity that uh, I I think we we need anymore. They've they don't have a purpose that um, they're actually keeping. They're they're abusing their authority. Um, and it really is great not only to have been one of the first people to to call for this, but to actually see you know a fantastic congressman like Mark Buchanan come out and and actually introduce legislation to get rid of them. So I, I think people in Wisconsin who have spent any time in the Capitol in the last few years probably have seen you or are familiar with you either from the Act 10 protests or from other legislation that you've come to testify on. But, you know, you, you're kind of like an everyday guy. And now you're on you know national television. You're, you're getting celebrities fundraising for you. What has it felt like to see yourself go from, you know, a guy that people in Wisconsin knew to a guy that everyone's paying attention to? Well, I'm, I'm still that same everyday guy. So at times it seems very surreal, like to have Chelsea Handler come into the district to offer help for a fundraiser so that, you know, somebody can go have a beer with Chelsea and Randy <laughs> at, at a local place. Um, it's, I think it, what it does is it says a lot of other people too. And, and when I talk to, to people, you know, like celebrities, they, and I, I ask them what, so why, you know, thank you so much for your support. It means a lot. And the thing is, is what people who are helping me um, raise funds, the story is always something along the lines of, you know, you remind me, I support you because you remind me of my dad. And without a hardworking dad who, you know, did worked with his hands, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. So I'm just, I'm donating to you to kind of give back because we need more people like you making decisions. It's not, um, it's not like on, on the Republican side. I mean, we We've stated very early on we're take, not taking money from Wall Street, from the fossil fuel industries. Um, we're not taking any NRA money or, or big pharma money. You know, in those groups, when they give money, they expect something in return. The people that have been helping us out are doing it because they feel that it's right for the country, that they want somebody that understands what it's like to struggle to, to be in those positions. And, I mean, for myself, it's I'm not running as one of these candidates that's like, this is where I'm going to stand if elected. I mean, people can look, and, and they do know me from the Capitol or, you know, taking off of work to go testify or, or walk a picket line throughout the state. They know where I've been, and that's been a huge help 
um, as far as being able to solidify the kind of support that we've we've seen grow in our campaign. care about this state deeply and these issues are going to be with me for a long time. Us talking about a five-year plan is not helping me. It may be fine for you, but it's not helping me. Now, whether they're from the community, I don't care. Whether they're from space, I don't care. As long as they can provide the best visual experience for Madison. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. These are Cap Times Talks, smart conversations about big topics in Madison. Look for Cap Times Talks on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. Are you ready for your lightning round? Sure. Okay. Favorite Wisconsin beer? Uh, Spotted Cow. All right. What's the best advice either your, your parents or someone important to you gave you when you were growing up? Um, when you're um, dating somebody, you can choose to either be correct or to be happy. <laughs> Uh, what is your favorite concert that you've ever attended or, or also maybe your first concert? Um, one of my favorite concerts was probably Pantera and White Zombie at the Summerfest grounds some years back. You are the first candidate I've interviewed to name anything in that genre. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good show because they were both together and they, they interacted very well. That's cool. That's good. Uh, who would you say, and you can name a couple for this, uh, would be a political role model or role models for you? Um, I love things that Elizabeth Warren has been able to do, you know, her background and, and what she stands for. Um, and also Dr. Martin Luther King has been very influential um, just because of how, you know, his, his stance on, on peaceful demonstrations and also the fact that he stood for civil rights and labor issues at the same time. And I, and I think that had we carried the civil rights issue along as strongly as we did with the labor issue, we wouldn't be under attack right now. We'd have more people standing with us to, to fight back against the anti-worker legislation we see now. Uh, do you have any pet peeves? Um. I do. The only thing I can't tolerate is intolerance. That's good. <laughs> uh, okay, you got to tell me about the mustache. Um, <laughs> how long have you had it? When did it become the iron stash? What's the mustache story? Um, well, I had a mustache for quite a while after, throughout my life. I finally shaved it in the Army for a while because you had to have it regulation cut, and that was just too much of a pain in the butt to have the sergeant say, no, it's not, it's not short <laughs> enough, so I just got rid of it. Yeah. Um, I ended up growing it back, um, had it off a couple of a, t- a couple of times, and then uh, when I was married, my former wife says, you know, you should have a mustache. And I was like, gladly. <laughs> um, she didn't like what it grew into sometimes. Like during the Act 10 days, it was it was a lot longer yeah. um, than it is now. Um, but as far as the iron stash, that, was, that came about because I went to the building trades, a legislative conference in D.C. every year, and I had been very active through Act 10 on Facebook, through social media. So we were starting to get other items going and trying to figure out how we could connect with other members in the building trades through all forms of social media. So Coop, the guy that was doing the social media for the building trades, said, you need to get involved in Twitter. So I tried it and was like, you have to come up with a Twitter handle and just kind of fell out of my mouth, iron stash. (laughs) I I wrote it down. He's like, hey, that's great. So... um, 
that's what it turned into. And then when we were deciding to run for office, it was like, well, should we have a different, you know, make up a different account that's more congressional? And I was like, no, that's me. I just, that's what this is about. It's just, it's about me being me. So let's keep that and, and go with it. And it's, it's worked so far. It, it seems so. If you've got celebrities, even women wearing fake <laughs> mustaches and yes. photos with you, that's, <laughs> yeah, that that's, I'd say it's taken on. If you had a Wisconsin bucket list, so like something that is really stereotypically Wisconsin that you've never done or tried or a place you've never been that you would you would like to do, what, what would that be? Um, go to the ice caves. Oh, yeah. I've never done that either. I've, I've never been there, and I see pictures, and that's someplace I'd really love to take my son, Ben. That looks like a cool place to go. Uh, okay, you ready for your last question? Sure. Favorite Wisconsin cheese? Cheddar. Any specific kind of cheddar? Just cheddar? Um, no, I, I tend to go for, like, the extra sharp cheddar and i mean every once in a while i can afford the you know the fancier stuff yeah as long as it's sharp cheddar and you know i can put it on a burger we're pretty good always good thank you for coming in i will let you leave listeners with any last uh parting words you would like to offer them no i'm just um you know especially today seeing the news that you know uh, uh, one of the chief justices is going to retire um the janice ruling from the supreme court uh, it's it's kind of dark times. Um, and I think right after Donald Trump was elected president, there was a lot of doom and gloom everywhere. But within the last year, I've been very optimistic to see, you know, this blue wave getting into the election before this blue wave hit. And especially the special elections that we've seen in Wisconsin, Senate District 10 and Senate District 1, a seat that Republicans have held since the 70s. Um, it's been a huge change since we got in this race. And, and I'm very grateful for all the support we've been getting from people in the state um, and really looking forward to getting back to Wisconsin progressive roots and, and having a nice state once again. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back every Friday with new episodes, so be sure to subscribe so you can get them as soon as they drop. If you like what you hear or you want to leave us some feedback, you can give us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you find your podcasts, or you can tweet at me at Opie or email me at J-O-P-O-I-E-N at madison.com. Be sure to check out our other Cap Times podcasts like The Mad Splainers and The Corner Table, and we'll see you next week.